0: Welcome back to the Access to Education podcast, where we talk about everything having to do with learning challenges and learning disabilities. Today on the show, we're going to talk about something a little different. We're going to talk about parenting and how it can be impacted when you discover your child has an exceptionality. With me today to talk about parenting and the grief we can sometimes experience after learning a diagnosis of our child is Julia. She's the registered social worker and owner of Attuned Families, helping families tune in to what matters. Julia works with families to help them learn about parenting their child through the lens of attachment parenting and providing parents with empowering tools to increase their understanding and harmony within their family. Julia, welcome to the show. Thank you. So let's start with something super basic because I know it's my question and you and I talked a little while ago and we kind of talked about this a little bit. So I would love for you to give us or sort of explain a little bit more about, I'm putting this in air quotes, the attachment parenting. Um, when I think about it, you and I talked about this, when I think about it, I think about it as the co-sleeping, the baby carrying, you know, mom and baby are always connected or dad and baby are always connected. And I know now, especially that it's much greater than that. So can you kind of give us a bit more information about what attachment parenting really means?
1: Absolutely. This is one of my favorite, favorite topics. So um, when the concept of and the importance of attachment was brought into the popular media, it was largely done so by Dr. Sears, who was absolutely well intended and has a lot to to offer. Um, Although he sort of explained attachment parenting in terms of behaviors that can encourage a healthy attachment relationship. Um, The thing is, there is no set of behaviors per se that will guarantee a secure attachment in your child, nor will, you know, um, your child, like your child won't necessarily have secure attachment because you use those behaviors and they won't have an insecure attachment if you don't use all of those behaviors, right? So attachment, what attachment really is at the core and what the, the way the research would explain attachment is it's. Um, a sense of security in, in feeling like your needs are gonna be met, in knowing that your needs are gonna be met. And so for this to happen, I talk a lot about attunement and, and the need for parents to be attuned. And being attuned means being able to tune into the inner world, inner psychological world of your child so that you'll understand where they're coming from. And attachment also gets talked about a lot more for babies and toddlers. But attachment is an important component of every relationship, and probably the most important component of every relationship. What, no matter the age of your kids, you have an attachment relationship with your spouse, and so we're trying to sort of broaden broaden the understanding and the lens around attachment. So it's not that co sleeping and breastfeeding and carrying your baby around are wrong, and they can certainly help, but You know, if some of those things don't work for you, that doesn't mean that you can't have a secure attachment with your child and you should just sort of, I've heard parents say, well, I'm not an attachment parent, right? Every parent has an attachment relationship with their child, like it or not. Um, And so let's not throw the baby out with the bathwater here. Let's work at the relationship.
0: So attachment parenting has more to do with the relationship and the bond that are created between child and parent or child and caregiver, depending on who it is, right? Because it's not always a parent in some kids' lives. It's a different person altogether.
1: Yeah. And when I work with teachers and principals, I explain that um, teachers and principals, daycare workers, other caregivers are secondary attachment figures to children. So there's an attachment relationship happening there as well.
0: There's an angle I hadn't thought about in terms of attachment, right? It's true. When I think about students, I've had some students who attach more to one teacher than another or who attach yes. to one staff member over another. You certainly see that in, especially, I think, more in the elementary years, but it's certainly in the high school. I mean, when I think of myself in high school, I had those you know teachers that I would go to for the big life moments to be like, how do I navigate this? Because they were the person yeah. that I went to. So yeah, with this- for sure better sort of understanding of the definition if you will if i can kind of put it that way of what we're talking about when we're talking about attachment in this scenario um how might that change for a parent as they're kind of discovering new things about their child so if they've just recently had a diagnosis of whatever it might be. So it might be ADHD, it might be a learning disability, it might be hearing impairment. I mean, it can be any of those things. How can that affect the attachment or the relationship that happens between the
1: parents? Right, so um, if you think of the brain as a house, the attachment, the part of the brain that develops around attachment needs being met would be the foundation of that house and it's on that foundation that all other brain development happens so if you have a child who is struggling in any way shape or form um, the best place to start is with um, checking in with their attachment relationships because once that foundation is secure once those attachment relationships are working well everything else gets easier So I can see how in a situation where a child has sort of additional challenges, anytime there's a discrepancy between a parent's expectation and a child's abilities, you are going to um, risk ruptures in the attachment relationship. That doesn't mean those can't be repaired, but what often ends up happening is is in day-to-day life, there's conflict because, Parents have expectations that children can't meet. Parents often see that as misbehavior or defiance and respond to it as such. And children feel misunderstood and shame and less motivated to try to do well, right? So in a perfect world, and I say in a perfect world because there are just tremendous amounts of pressure on parents these days from all sides. And so part of what makes it harder for us to be attuned to our kids and really understand and see that they're not misbehaving or acting out is our own stress levels and all of the demands on us, right? Um, But in a perfect world, that relationship is working well and parents can understand where their children are at, where they need some support and scaffolding, and, and help move their children along to meeting their full potential.
0: Yeah. So I, as you're talking about that, I can certainly think back to prior to my eldest's diagnosis of ADHD and he would, he was a very reactive child, right? It was a, he wouldn't think through what was happening. And I mean, he was also about three in this example, he was sort of in some preschool stuff and there were things happening and the preschool teacher would say, Oh, he'd done this and he'd done that. And then instead of trying to figure out kind of what was going on, because I didn't know, I would just get really angry with him and really frustrated be like, well, why can't you just, right? And then that would kind of destroy our relationship a little bit because he wasn't doing it on purpose. He was just doing it because that's the way his brain works. But I didn't have the answers yet to understand the why. Makes the relationship a little bit, I don't know, tense. And I think too, I had an expectation of how he was going to behave (laughs) or how I wanted Mm -hmm. him to behave. And that maybe wasn't where he was at at that point. He just wasn't able to meet that expectation. Right.
1: Yeah. And I think part of what happens um, in a lot of families is, you know, culturally our expectations of children under six are extremely out of line with their developmental capabilities. And so that shame cycle gets going in kids really early and and kids don't mature in the way that they should. And, and so these behaviors persist for a lot longer than they would if we understood as parents of young children, um, what are reasonable expectations, what is developmentally appropriate and how to create the conditions around our children for them to mature out of those behaviors or into the behaviors that we're looking for.
0: Well, and I think too, I mean, just talking about cultural differences, I mean, I grew up with a mother who was European, who was from France and she had grown up in a particular way and had a particular idea of what it would be like. And then coming to Canada, it's different, right? And I think that that's probably also a challenge for families as they navigate changing where they're from and having expectations of what they know is maybe different to what, you know, might be a Canadian expectation or a Canadian way of doing things, you know, simple things just as like what you wear out are different in cultures, right. And the way you behave in your home and and those things.
1: Yeah. And often young kids who are more impressionable pick up and adjust to those changes more quickly than their parents. And Dr. Gordon Neufeld, who I've done um, some training with would um would say that it undermines the parent's alpha status, which you really need. And alpha isn't about being controlling, but it's about being able to adjust and roll with the punches and project a sense of like, I've got this, right? And so that's, that's another common challenge in a situation like that.
0: And I think, well, I, I'm guessing, but I mean, I'm just thinking of myself as a parent, you know, with each child that you have. Um, you ha- When your child is born, they put that baby, they hand you that baby. And I don't know about other people, but I saw a vision. I saw a thing of like, oh, this is going to be splendid and this is going to be awesome. But then with the diagnosis of ADHD, with the diagnosis of learning disability, with the diagnosis of anxiety, each one of those things that I had envisioned changed. And I had to take some time as a parent to say, it's not my fault. I didn't do it. It's the way their brain is. It's the, And so letting go of that stuff and kind of f- being okay with a, a, a different path, I guess. I don't know. Do you see that often in families when you work with them? Sort of the the challenges that they go through as they kind of go through the ebbs and flows of, of the development of a child?
1: Absolutely. And I think um, it's part of the parenting course that I do is about that very issue of like, what is your agenda? What are your expectations? And grieving some of those and letting go of some of those. And but then also embracing, I really believe that our children as painful a process as it can be, our children are really good at shining a light on our blind spots and helping us reach a really impressive level of maturity. And um, so embracing that side of it. Um, one of the f- things I say most often to parents is you are not the cause of these problems, but you are a huge part of the solution.
0: And I think as a parent, sometimes what we have to do is switch the narrative a bit and find the strengths that our children have, because a lot of us have gone through assessments and we find out all these amazing things about our kids and start to play on those more. And that I think changed the- changes the narrative, From, oh, my kid can't or my child can't read or they can't play socially well, but there's lots of other things that your kids can do. And so kind of flipping it a little bit, um, I think, helps with some of the grief, some of the understanding and, and some of the being able to kind of move forward in a positive way.
1: Yeah. And adopting a growth mindset. They can't read yet. Most kids will read. Right. And so they're not there yet. How can we support them and when I say support them, it, I don't mean, I'm not saying that tutoring and the academic support is, is not the right route. What I find is that many families um, jump to that route without laying the foundation. And so I think that it is, it takes so much more effort for kids to learn when there is a missing piece around the social emotional side of things.
0: That's a hard part. That's social emotional. It's, it's a push pull I find because as a parent with two kids with, with various challenges, the emotional side for me was often a hard one to navigate and remembering that if I'm not emotionally, okay, I can't support them. And so as a parent kind of being able to say, okay, I need to take that walk so that I can, or I need to go and do groceries by myself because I need
1: looking after you. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah, it's very hard. It, it takes a lot of energy, right, to look yes, after kids yeah. who need a lot. And if we don't yeah, look after
1: ourselves, it's hard. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And I think the other piece of that is if you have a running narrative around self-blame, and even, even sometimes as we say to ourselves, this isn't my fault, this isn't my fault, this isn't my fault, until you process this narrative of self-blame so that you can clear that away, it is a lot harder to sit with your children with these problems, right?
0: Yeah, it's the stages of grief, right? You have to go through them. And and they exist. I mean, nobody's died, nobody has died. But there is still there are still stages you go through. I certainly went through the anger, the the emotional of like this is my fault, the denial, right? I went through all of those even though mm-hmm. I had the assessments and I had it on paper. I had seen it. but it's coming to terms with it and understanding what it means. And I think for myself, because I had gone through it as a child, I knew what it was like, and I didn't want that. I didn't want the same thing, but it's given me a different perspective, right? It's just a different perspective. So when we're talking about support, because we're kind of on that, that train of talking about support, I mean, you are a social worker and I've certainly worked with social workers within the school system, but we always think of social workers or many of us think of social workers as supporting families through major crises. So I'm thinking of like a death in the family. Um, They've had to leave home in a hurry because of, you know, many circumstances that happen in life. But let's talk about. Yeah the other stuff that social workers can 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 do because they work with families in crisis but they do so much more than that so how do social workers support families who are going through change such as you know finding out that your child has some needs that weren't maybe anticipated what is your role in supporting families there
1: yeah and I think that that social workers sort of have that reputation partly because um in the public sector, and I've worked for a long time in the public education system as well. Um, the The need is so great that social workers end up spending their time putting out fires, right? Um, <laughs> and so, and the other thing is social work as a field is very broad. There are all kinds of different specializations that you can have as a social worker, all different kinds of populations you can work with. So, um, in in this particular situation and what I do at attune families is the clinical side of social work. so it is assessment and treatment of and psychoeducation around um, anything to do with family difficulties, difficulties in children, um, whether they're social, emotional, relational, behavioral um, and, I also do parent coaching, so all parent coaching, family therapy, child therapy. Um, yeah, but so it just depends. You, you could meet a hundred social workers and they could all be doing something different. <laughs> so I don't think I realized that social workers could have
0: different, I don't know, niches. Is that a good way to describe it? Like different things yeah. that you're, you're kind of drawn to. Because I mean, in, in the academic setting that I've worked with social workers, it's often been in those crisis situations, right? Yes. Um, and I think sometimes parents have a bit of a misunderstanding of what social workers can do to support families. Because I've certainly had many mm-hmm. families say, oh, I don't want to talk to a social worker. Yes. Because I, th- I think they think it's a negative thing or it's a punitive thing. And
1: it, it's not. Well, and it's, there's also an association between uh, like child services and social workers because they hire social workers, right? Right. It's like a small percentage of social workers who work in that industry, but um, you know, it's a, it's scary for some people, the thought of, uh, well, for everyone, the thought of dealing with child services. So then the social, the term social worker being attached to that um, can be intimidating, kind of a misunderstanding around what it is.
0: Can social workers support families in finding, say, for example, agencies or resources or sort of starting to know or figuring out their launching point? Is that something social workers can help with when you're new, when you've newly discovered something? Is
1: that kind of what you can do? For sure. Yeah. So you can you can do so. The the unique thing about a social worker versus like a psychologist, for example, is we look at problems in terms of the individual and um, also in light of broader social and cultural issues and structural issues, right? So the structures in place. So it kind of takes the the blame, if you will, off the individual and it makes sense of the individual in the context of their family, in the context of their society, right? And so um, connecting them with resources, psychoeducation, um, and therapy would be, would all be parts of um, what someone like me does. Yeah.
0: Yeah. So it's just a great additional resource to find out more information, right? It's not a, it's not a punitive thing. It's not a negative thing. It's just a someone else to help you walk through the paces because sometimes the paces are large and <laughs> overwhelming.
1: Yes, absolutely. It's a supportive role. Um, and one of the core tenets of social work is starting where the client is at. So really it's not that that someone like me is going to come in and say, well, you have to do it this way or this way or this way. It's very careful listening and understanding. And then as a team, we, and I sort of share certain expertise or a certain viewpoint um, and knowledge. And together we decide, okay, what's the best next step for you?
0: So let's take it into the school environment a little bit. Cause I think it's important to kind of connect that because I think a lot of the time, this conversation starts at school because that's when people or teachers or educators or those sorts of things start to notice differences in children and start to kind of ask some questions. So how can teachers connect with social workers? So I know within a school system, generally there's, you know, uh, a head of special education or the principal or whatever, but what, what should, or how would a teacher know that the suggestion of social work might be applicable to a family or a student because it it's hard to know when it's a good fit i mean i know we all say it okay the child seems unhappy or depressed or you know they don't have a lunch or all those sorts of things but what are some of the surrounding other reasons why teachers might want to connect with social workers
1: well i mean social workers are a great resource for teachers in troubleshooting problematic behaviors in general um helping support them in you know, classroom management and understanding the, the developmental, psychological, social side of learning, the relational side of learning. Um, unfortunately, you know, most teachers don't have the luxury of having access to a social worker that much because the typical school social worker has like five to eight schools that they're responsible for. Um, so I would say realistically speaking, If they're seeing a social, emotional or behavioral issue in a child, that's where you consult with your team. And if the team agrees that social work is um, appropriate, you go to the um, school support team meeting and or whatever your school calls this multidisciplinary meeting that happens monthly and you discuss the child and their needs and um, you can request a social work referral.
0: So what about from a parent perspective? So I'm a parent and I've found out some new information about my child and I'm not quite sure how to make sense of it or where to start with what needs to be done to support them. What are some kind of key factors for parents to say, OK, yes, yeah, social work might be a good place for me to start? What, how can they know reaching out to a social worker is is maybe a good idea?
1: I mean, I'm a little bit biased because I think it's always going to be a good idea <laughs> because we, that because if in a perfect world, from my perspective, we would at least do an assessment to say, okay, you know, all of the foundational things are in place. Right. And now, now all where we go from here is, is more clear. Right. And so um, that's the ideal. Most people, and and honestly, some parents actually reach out to me as sort of a preventive um, measure. We want to have a relationship with someone. We know that parenting is going to be challenging at one point or another. And so, you know, we want to, and a lot of people have extended benefits to cover the cost or most of the cost. And so... They want to put some of the time in and get ahead of the game so that as challenges come up, the, the relationship is already there and, and we can um, resolve things or find the right course for that family. Um, but I would say if a parent is feeling stuck, most parents will reach out because they're feeling stuck or worried or they're seeing things in their child that that are concerning them so behaviors in their child or their child is sharing um, certain thoughts or feelings that are concerning for them Um, usually people are are more a little more on the reactive side instead of the preventive side typically I would say so you
0: just talked about something that I, I feel like we need to kind of go over again the
1: idea mm-hmm. that
0: social workers are covered through some extended insurances and that insurance coverages. And so it's always a good idea for parents to contact their insurance companies and say, hey, what, what is my coverage? So to be covered by insurance, what should parents be looking for? Is it all social workers or do they have to have a certain title generally?
1: You're looking for registered social work.
0: Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So that's. I just think that's a really important point to make because I think that- yeah for a lot of these outside resources parents think oh i can't afford it it's out of our reach but if they are lucky enough to have an extended health care plan through their work through whatever yeah. manner they have it to look into yeah. what is covered and and sometimes i know i discovered things that were covered that i had no idea until i asked the question yeah
1: yeah for sure and i'm also covered under you can also look for psychotherapy because some plans cover psychotherapy now as well um, it's different college. It's worth checking into, but even if someone calls me who doesn't have benefits and doesn't have a lot of disposable income, it's really important to me that people find the support that they need. So I will always help someone navigate this, the public system, um, if they're looking for support and they've found their way to me, but they can't, uh, manage the expense of it.
0: Yeah. Even if it's just calling, uh, a social worker or an agency or someone and saying, Hey, I just need to get on the list or I need to know how to do it. Right. Like just those little pointers and guiders to start the process, because those of us who have gone through the the system know that the wait lists are long and the sooner you can get on the better. Right.
1: Yeah, for sure. Yeah.
0: So one of the questions I really like to ask guests when we get kind of near the end of our conversation um, is sort of what parenting books do you think are really worth reading? Because I can go, I have gone down the rabbit hole of ordering every book on Amazon that talks about ADHD, every book on Amazon that talks about, you know, supporting your child through, and we can go down rabbit holes. So I find it really helpful when we talk to experts like yourself to say, hey, what do you really recommend so that parents are, because we're busy, we need to really tailor our time and make or we're pinpointing the, the good pieces. So, do you have any really good
1: recommendations for us? Yeah, I think um, in reflecting on our conversation today, the book that comes to mind, and I do have a list of, of resources on my website, but the book that I would point out um, that would not be an obvious pick is called Rest, Play, Grow. And it does say that this book is for children, um, is relevant to children sort of zero to six, but it really applies to any person who hasn't matured out of certain, you know, we don't, it's not inevitable that we all mature to our fullest potential, right? Most adults have certain immaturities. Um, And so... I think it's really helpful because especially for children who have learning disabilities or ADHD or any kinds of additional challenges um, at any age, there are certain things they may not have matured out of. And this book really helps a parent understand developmentally what is going on there, what is fair to expect and understand. And the other one I would say would be peaceful parent, happy child. Keeping in mind, though, that um, what I find is in what I do, there's sort of three three pillars to the work that I do. One is about information and knowledge. Um, the other is about self-care, because no matter how much you know about how to do it, I can tell you firsthand, it's still not going to be easy, right? So the self-care piece you touched on is absolutely important. And then the third is around clearing the blocks that that can get in the way. One of which is like that narrative of self-blame that we've talked about. Or some parents have, you know, are doing things for their kids that are not working and they keep doing them anyway because there's a narrative in there. Sometimes they're not even conscious of it around why it's important to do that. And until we shift that, it's really hard to shift the behavior. Um, so Peaceful Parents, Happy Child is great for like knowledge and and the, ha- the how-to's. Um, I just like to let people know, Um, in case people get frustrated that like, why can't I do it? I'm reading all this stuff. I know what to do and I keep not doing what I want to do. And that's when um, it can be helpful to have a little bit of additional support.
0: Yeah. That self-care though, like it always comes back to that, right? Mm -hmm. That it's so hard to free up your emotional self if you're not in that mindset. And it sometimes, I don't know about other people listening, but certainly for myself, when I haven't done enough of the self-care, my body sort of does a, it gets sick or it gets overly tired. And it's kind of my body's way of being like, Hey, I'm overloaded. You need to take a step yeah. back. It's sort of the oxygen mask on yourself first. You know, when you go, when we used to get on planes and they'd say, yeah. put your oxygen mask on first. That's really what it's about. Yeah.
1: And I know in my family, and I think this is true in a lot of families when I'm not well or at hundred percent, my children get alarmed by that and they act out more right and so which so it's kind of feels like they kick you when you're down right but you can see a lot more problematic behaviors in kids when you're less available for that connection with them because you are down and out yourself right because you're not looking after yourself yeah for sure so
0: My other question for you. So we're recording a podcast episode. People are listening to this because podcasts are convenient. They're a put it in your pocket, go for a walk, listen to it in your drive to work. There's millions of parenting podcasts out there. Um, I've certainly gone through the list and been like, hmm, I wonder about this one. I wonder about that one. Are there any that you sometimes suggest people check out because you have found them to be particularly informative?
1: I really like Janet Lansbury's podcast on parenting. She responds to, she's often responding to parenting questions, and her take is really in line with mine um, around parenting and and child development and so on. So yeah, I like hers. Nice.
0: So Julia, thanks so much for the conversation today. I know that um, I certainly knew about social workers, but I've learned a little bit more and I definitely have a better understanding of the idea of attachment parenting and, and kind of more what it's about, which is great because I think it's important that we understand the different ways that we can parent and everybody parents differently according to what works in their household. Right. Um, but I'm wondering about how people can find out more about what you do. We talked a little bit about what you do, but where can they find you? and What kind of specifically do you work on? I think it'd be great if you could fill us in on that.
1: Yeah, so I offer a parenting course called getting through to your kids, um, which helps with some of the issues that we've talked about today when you have when you need to guide your child through um, whether it's, you know, helping them manage big emotions or helping them access their learning in a different way you need to have a certain level of ability to reach them so this course is all about that Um, i also do therapy family therapy and therapy with kids uh, polyvagal therapy and attachment-based therapies Um, so lots of neat stuff you can find me at attunedfamilies.ca and all of the information is there
0: okay i'll make sure to link it in the description for this podcast julia thanks once again this was great
1: thank you take care
0: if you are looking for help and support in creating a roadmap to success for your child through challenging times, contact me at accesstoeducation.com. I work with all families to help them build power and knowledge in understanding their child's needs and how to build success through advocacy. Follow me on Facebook and Instagram at access 2 Toronto make sure to subscribe to this podcast so together we can create your roadmap to success.